0: Shalom, everybody. Welcome, uh, welcome back to another episode of uh, the Almond House Upper Room After Hours. Um, Yeah, it's been a minute. Um, A lot of time has passed, a lot of bridge under the, a lot of water under the bridge. Um, uh, It's great to be back uh it's been well over a month since i've been in the hot seat uh a lot's been taking place um and it's uh yeah it's a pleasure to be back so thanks for joining me um yet again we've got a lot to get through um action packed as ever um but i really appreciate you taking your time as ever uh with joining me um yeah it's been a it's <laughs> to say that this episode is a bit of a melting pot uh, of some contributing factors into what we're going through today. Uh, I'm really looking forward to to getting into it and and walking this one through. So um, first and foremost, I think I want to give a shout out. Um, I'm always uh, advocating for use of the comment section because it's something that I like to go through. Um, Shout out Brandy D33. Every time I see a new podcast notification from you, I have to stop whatever I'm doing. I mean, thanks. So, yeah, that means a lot. I have to stop whatever I'm doing and play the first 10 seconds because the intro music is life-giving to my soul. Uh, not to diminish your content in any way. Uh, I always enjoy the discussion as well. But I would pay 50 bucks to have that intro song in its entirety. So, um, yeah, uh, appreciate the compliment. Some some are here for the, for the content. Some are just here for the tunes. Either way, I'm happy you're here um again shout out our brother Josh who's like a legit uh producer uh extremely talented I think we shouted him out in the very first episode um but yeah uh, I'm hoping maybe perhaps one day we can get him on the show uh and have a little sit down because he's uh he's got great testimony with regards to his experience in the music industry and um perhaps we can put a link in the description he's uh he's on Instagram and all that jazz so um yeah nice one Josh uh you've got a fan there Um, yeah, uh, since the last time we've, we've sat down, uh, we've had the end of the full feast. We had a feast of trumpets, uh, the feast of tabernacles, Sukkot. Um, and I think with, uh, what, uh, with everything that's taken place of late and the season that we're going into, it just be good to, to touch on Sukkot, uh, especially from, from our perspective. It was, um it was such a blessed time and i guess the it's important to actually highlight uh, the things that we do as a as a fellowship and to celebrate those things because it's uh, it's a privilege to be part of uh, and again a lot of uh, what what i'm doing here is uh, highlighting uh, some of the maybe uh, not so um not so pleasant elements of what what takes place in the world, so I think it's important that we balance that out with uh, why we do what we do. And um, Sukkot was just such a culmination of of uh, so much effort over the course of the year, um, so much, uh, um, so much, uh, so many examples of, of the spirit uh, moving, um, either being. In the fruits or in the giftings, and uh, it was truly, um, you know, it's truly a, a an amazing witness to 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 be part of. You know, is as as Bible believing Christians, um, we. We advocate for what is actually written in the scriptures, and, and and to show that, and and to be part of that was just a, was just an absolute privilege. And I just pray that, um, and I hope that those that uh, follow the Moedim, that follow the the, the the holy days, as it were, uh, as ordained in the scriptures. Uh, I really hope that you had a blessed time. I really hope that it, it's it's uh, galvanised and boosted you to to move into this next season. Uh, of course, as we go into the new Torah cycle um i just hope that all of those um experiences were sealed and um oh how, how did that one get oh how did that get in there <laughs> um yeah no it was just so much joy uh so much love so much uh compassion there was ju- it was just action-packed um shout out to everyone that was involved to, to all of the leadership uh to everybody that came from all parts of the country from across the pond um it, it it was it was truly uh, an amazing time, and um, yeah, uh, thank you to everyone involved. And I, I hope that that uh, that that really bolsters you for for this next uh, coming season. Now, um, the reason why I start here is because it was we had an overlap um, with Sukkot, and on the eighth day, obviously, we had the um, uh, we had the beginnings of what's now taking place in the land in Israel. Now um I think I mentioned in the very first episode that I I I'm not proclaiming to be a, a prophetic newscaster or a reader of the the times in that in that context. Um so uh sorry to disappoint you if you're looking for any sort of commentary, if you're looking for any sort of viewpoint on what's taking place, uh, it's I'm not your guy uh, essentially. Uh, I have my own personal opinions and it's not something I, I'm necessarily afraid to share. I just feel like there's a there's a plethora of platforms out there. There's there's plenty of uh, either uh, mainstream content or even Christian uh, content providers um, that are uh, doing their best to make sense of what's taking place. Now, obviously, you have different elements. Whether some people think there's a prophetic um, uh, fulfillment taking place, the Ezekiel thirty-eight, or you know any number of scriptures that people are trying to um, you know, line up with and and that's absolutely fine. It's just I I'm not I'm not the guy for that. I don't feel like I'm I'm either qualified in the scriptures to do so. It's not my position to do so. Uh I don't feel like I'm informed enough geopolitically with the history of the context of the modern history of, of uh of the land and all the dynamics. Uh again, I, I know what I know, but I don't feel like I could do the subject justice. So what I will say is uh, tune in to our next Parsha, uh, which is Noak Lech Lecha with Joe. That will be released uh, this coming Friday, I believe. And I think he does a, a great job uh, amalgamating the Torah portion itself with uh, the current situation and the climate that's taking uh, part right now. Um, so that's my uh, piece on that. Um, with that being said, I, I think... Uh, that does dovetail into the main um into the main uh, part of, of today's discussion. Um, what I'd like to get into is uh is, is journalism uh essentially. Journalism, media, um where we're at today, um the the uh, a- again, because I'm limited for time. Uh, the 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 condensed history of of where we're at in terms of how things are reported and 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 how the the media and journalism itself has has uh, changed. And I'm asking the question essentially: Is is journalism as we know it dead? You know, are we in the the, the death rows of what uh, journalism actually constitutes uh, with the advent of? Uh, Social media and the digital age, uh, where we stand in that, and how we navigate that as as Bible believing Christians. Um, so that's that's the uh, that's the inspiration uh, for today. Um, so if we just uh, take a look, basically, um, the element of uh, going back to to where it begins is uh, is always a good place to start. Um, so let's have a look. Um, now th- the premise is that journalism itself, um, I guess historically has been a way in which, uh, we can hold, um, powers that be, uh, governing bodies. Um, we can, uh, hold, uh, things, institutions and people to a, to a, uh, an account uh, to to an extent uh, people throughout history document things that take place and um there is a degree of transparency of how history is 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 recorded um and i thought this was an apt topic given uh recent events that are taking place and obviously just my own personal experience of how i consume media and journalism and how uh by uh by a way I, I, I found myself in that realm of what it feels like to be uh, either censored, um, uh, you know, deplatformed, having to be careful about what words you say and, and what is allowed, what is permitted, um, how that's affected me personally in terms of how I um, research and uh, provide content. Um, so, with that, I, I believe there's a melting pot at the moment of how we navigate this this so-called uh, quest for for truth, because um, a lot of people that have come to the faith, particularly in the Torah elements, have navigated the, this this realm of truth. And uh, in this age of information and truth, uh, we're in a very strange place. So, my heart is to to look at this uh, how this is uh, originated and how this has changed, and and, and the space that we find ourselves in. Um, so yeah, is journalism dead? Is it is it uh, is it a, a thing that we can actually use and uh, rely on in any way? So if we uh, if we just go back uh, to the history of you know I, I was looking at what were the the origins, what was considered the first uh, example of um, of journalism, and um, it brought me to a thing called Acta Diurna. Uh, which is um, sometimes uh, translated as the Daily Public Records or poetically Daily Gazette, uh, which were daily Roman official notices. Uh, so there's your first red flag. Uh, a sort of Daily Gazette. Uh, they were carved on stone or metal and presented in message boards in public places such as the Forum of Rome. Uh, they were also called simply Acta. In many ways, they functioned like an early newspaper for the Roman citizenry. The actor were begun in fifty nine BC, uh, so not yeah shortly be- before the the, the st- destruction of the Second Temple, uh, and continued until AD two two two. Now I, I'm sure there's many examples that predates this um, uh, this this notion of uh, recording information and presenting it to a public realm. Um, I think this is just citing a more organised platform for it, and in in the context of what we would describe as journalism. Um, Actor uh, Diurna, also called Actor Populi, uh, Actor Publica, or simply simply Actor, Actor or Diurna. My Latin's not great. Uh, in ancient Rome, it was a sort of daily government gazette uh, containing an officially authorised narrative of noteworthy events in Rome. Uh, its contents were partly uh, official, so court news, decrees of the Roman Emperor, Roman Senate, and Roman magistrates and partly private, so notice it's notices of births, marriages, and deaths. Uh, thus, thus, to some extent, it filled the place the, of the modern newspaper. So the origin of the actor is attributed to Julius Caesar, who first ordered the keeping and publishing of the acts of the people by public officers. Uh, acts, The actor were drawn up from day to day, exposed in a public place, on a whitened board called an album. Uh, After remaining there for a reasonable time, they were taken down and preserved with other public documents so that it might be available uh, for purposes of uh, research. Uh, And then it goes on to describe the the, uh, evolution of that. So uh, just uh, on the premise of the origins of a government-organised and affiliated way of recording information that could be um, transmitted then to uh, the public... If we uh, then go on to the origins of the, the printing press, again, we've got the uh, the languages in uh, what we would refer to as the modern press. So be it newspapers, magazines, and all of that uh, old stuff. Um, so we have on one side this, this uh, platform for um, facilitating uh, governmental uh, protocol and news. And then with the printing press, it's got a machine by which text and images are transferred from movable type to paper or other media uh, by means of ink. Uh, Movable type and paper were invented in China, and the oldest known extant book printed from movable type was created in Korea in the 14th century. Uh, Printing first became mechanized in Europe during the 15th century. And again, you can probably dig around, and there's probably uh, earlier examples of Different forms of that. I mean, you can go back to papyrus in Egypt and all of that stuff, but in terms of, again, an organized uh, way of uh, relaying information, uh, this is the one. So, the earliest mention of a mechanized printing press in Europe uh, appears in a lawsuit in Strasbourg in 1439. It reveals the construction of a press for Johannes Gutenberg and his associates. Uh, Gutenberg's press and others of its era in Europe owed much to the medieval paper press, which was in turn modelled after the ancient wine and olive press of the Mediterranean era. Uh, A long handle was used to turn a heavy wooden screw, uh, screw exerting downward pressure against the paper, which was laid over the type mounted on a wooden platen. Uh, Gutenberg used this press to print an edition of the Bible in 1455. Uh, This Bible is the first complete extant book in the West, and it is one of the earliest books printed from movable type. Now, uh, again, so you've got this um, uh, beautiful composition here of the advocacy of, um, you know, this gazette format to convey a message from, uh, from a government. And then on the other side, you've got this uh, wonderful invention of the printing press, which allows uh, the word of God to be printed and to be accessible to, uh, to certain people. So you've got the uh, early coming together of, of how uh, man and people want to convey um, information to the public. So with everything that's taken place with regards to censorship and the uh, the era that we're in, I thought it'd be good to have a look at the evolution of of. The concept of journalism Um, and I I came across this paper which was citing the origins of journalism studies so it's looking into uh, journalism itself but I thought it it provided quite a good commentary in terms of what we see today so um, I've got my glass of water because I'm going to be doing a lot of reading which is a byproduct of me uh, not really knowing how much video content I'm actually able to show Uh, so if you get bored of my voice I do apologise it's just a bit of a nightmare trying to navigate what video and content we're actually allowed to share for, for different reasons anyway I digress the origins of journalism studies are somewhat imprecise while Jorgensen and Hanitch identify four phases in the history of journalism research normative, empirical turn, sociological turn and global comparative turn The normative theories of journalism studies research are generally viewed as emanating from German social theorists from the mid-19th century who were more preoccupied with what journalism ought to be rather than the production of news. Classic studies on journalists and editorial structures such as those on gatekeeping, news values and agenda setting signal the empirical turn in journalism studies alongside those studies that preceded them which are based on administrative research uh, and conducted by scholars such as Carl Hovland, Paul Lazarsfeld, Kurt Lewin and Harold Laswell. Uh, their work within the social sciences, sciences had a profound impact on the production of knowledge about journalism, drawing on experiments and surveys to understand the working of the news media. So there's, there's people who, who've been incredibly studious about how journalism works in a modern context. Now, most of the work in the 1950s came from outside sociology, and it was not until the 70s that sociologists' research uh, in journalism studies began to emerge, uh, producing crucial insights for the development of the field. Sociology built a body of work enabling a coherent narrative of existing practices in journalism and news organizations. Research in the 70s and 80s primarily focused on news production practices in the United States and the United Kingdom. Using interviews, direct observation and ethnography, uh, that's the study of like cultures and uh, practices of different people, Uh, researchers explored routine, routinized practices, power relations and institutional connections from a critical perspective. It is a period often characterizes the golden age of production studies. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Increased globalisation and development of new communication technologies saw the 1990s identified as the beginning of the global comparative turn, in which researchers began to conduct more international and comparative research, as Lothenholz and Weaver asserted, that journalism research can no longer operate within national or cultural borders only questions were asked as to how can journalism studies be reorienting reoriented to the global in a way that does not conceive of other journalisms as separate nation-based sets of practices institutions or ideologies but as globally interrelated so you have this notion of how journalism is localized to communities and with the advent and development of globalization, there's that word globalization, this oneness of the world, how you can then orientate your commentary on that because it's becoming more uniform essentially. And and this will tie into to the overall arc of this. Now the global turn also involved work which called for a reaction against the self absorption and parochialism of Western media theory. Uh, again, that's the narrowing of a perspective is parochialism Um, there was a reaction to dominant debates in journalism studies still largely centered on challenges and dilemmas faced in the global north other scholars extended this call across the journalism curriculum as well as the research agenda to include a reorientation towards the global rather than just give a nod to the rest of the world by having a module on global journalism or international reporting Perhaps the only niche looking south was the work on development journalism conducted during the 60s and 70s. The majority of this work concentrated on normative ideals suitable for newly independent countries rather than copying the types of journalism left by imperial empires. In recent years, the debate about development journalism has centred on its definition. Journalists as agents of social change, nation-builders, Partners of government, watchdogs, guardians of transparency, non-adversarial, communitarians. Even the, even the term itself has been criticized, criticized for being hollowed out and to an anachronistic concept. So you have this idea of how a journalist it's, itself uh, can then uh, be used in these different agencies, whether it's uh, to perpetuate a government uh, move uh, for, for social change uh, and for, for guardians of transparency that's that's the truth as it were now the global turn uh, has also witnessed the growing body of research from outside the Anglo-american sphere in the 1990s European journalism scholarship for example began to grow out of the interest of comparative media systems with a special interest in media policies and the nature of European public sphere and the role and place of journalism in this development. Uh, the 2000 saw many studies examining uh, European journalism reporting on Europe and the EU with a proliferation of Europe-wide comparative research projects and news and journalism. So there's a lot going on, basically, uh, in this in this change and shift. Now, bear with me, you are going to have to walk with me on this one for a bit. Now, we go into the digital turn. It is possible now to identify a fifth phase, the digital turn, which is mostly framed around a crisis in journalism. Digital media have disrupted journalistic practices, upended economic models, introduced new voices, challenged normative commitments and offered offered novel ways of accessing news. The response from the academy of these changes has been threefold. The first is reassessment or rather a replay of the sociological turn to fit the new environment in journalism. The lack of sociological theory and methods with which to engage in the analysis of new media forms, new practices and structures is noted in recent work. Um, a recent collection uh, provides a disparate and comprehensive repraisal of media sociology and journalism and its possible use in analysing contemporary phenomena of journalism's institutions, industries, audiences, representations and digital technologies. Um, a further volume edited... Uh, proposes a cultural sociological approach to the crisis of journalism that draws attention to the cultural commitment of journalism itself. Within the sociological response, journalism studies are also seeing the return of ethnography and network ethnography, whether social... It goes on and basically... here we go, yeah. The second response signals attempts to new definitions and theories of journalism. Uh, scholars searching for a framework to analyse new forms of producing news in the digital age argue the need for multidisciplinary work to comprehend a new paradigm. So it's all changed, it's switched up, and they need to assess how this is um, facilitated with the role of technology. Uh, this multidisciplinary approach has led to new work, for example, on hybridity, which focuses on the he uh domain of news and journalism and time. Uh, Hedrogynous is the, a mixture of different things. Um, it argues that traditional journalistic values of impartiality and objectivity and fixed notions that combine journalism to news and information have lost much of their credence and authority. These categories have come to coexist and interact with other notions and values which have emerged, like immediacy, appeal and effect – so it's suggesting here this uh, negating of uh, the original purpose of journalism to convey the truth, but it has in turn led to other uh, areas like immediacy, appeal and effect. So how fast it comes, the, the breaking news, uh, how it can uh, reach an audience and how you can get viewers um, the digital turn has led to other scholars proposing new definitions or classifications of journalism, such as ecologies of news and boundaries of journalism, new normative perspectives, new theories and reimaginings and journalism and democracy. So this is all a bit scholarly and wordly, wordy, but I thought it encapsulates this um, this shifting of um, what journalism was and the space in which we now find ourselves in in this digital age so so um, the question is journalism dying because to the average uh, average Joe on the street journalism uh, largely constituted the newspapers the broadsheets uh, the magazines, TV and radio all of these old forms of media which we've uh, well arguably shifted away from um, and so yeah, that question of is journalism dying? Um, let's have a look. So, uh, when you put the above query into a search engine, the results you receive are varied. Some believe that it is struggling to survive, while others point towards its continued evolution as a counterpoint. So, you can't. It's hard to go on a uh, a mainstream news website without them asking for money, basically, whether it be a subscription. Uh, or a contribution because they're they're on the backside. Uh, those who think newsrooms are on their last legs uh, point towards the U.S. Bureau Bureau of Labor Statistics detailing that the newspaper industry has lost more than fifty percent of its employees since two thousand and one. Uh, for any industry, that's that's a serious um, serious cut. Uh, however, others believe that the news media is evolving, uh, finding new business models that don't fit into the traditional newspaper guys. Um, many of the resources that national and local news had to survive are no longer of much value. Uh, there may be something to that theory is according to the Pew Research Centre, a total number of newsroom employees working in the digital native sectors increased from thirteen thousand in twenty eighteen to eighteen thousand in twenty twenty. Uh this is a clear illustration of where many of us are spending our attention these days. So again, the move movement from analog to digital essentially. It's it's coming away from the, the printing press into the uh the matrix of 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 our screens. Uh this is a clear illustration of where many of us are spending our attention these days. On the one hand, many of the resources that national and local news had to survive are no longer of much value. While on the other, social media, podcasts and digital news in general are exposing people to more uh, information than ever. And again, we're going to get into this notion of the the, the shift, uh, which could be perceived as a a good thing um, and how we got to the point where we are today. Uh, of course, it hasn't just been traditional newspaper journalism that has been questioned in recent times. Not so long ago, there were stories detailing job lots, uh, lost jobs in online news sources such as Vice, uh, BuzzFeed and Huffington Post. Uh, however, there is little doubt that traditional media is losing ground to digital media. Uh, for instance, research has shown that around 86% of Americans are getting their news from uh, digital devices. Uh, meanwhile, the same study has also shown that only 10% of people are regularly getting their news from print. Um, what about the trust issues? These statistics alone would suggest that the journalism ecosystem is alive and well, but its consumers have just migrated. Uh, the difference between digital media and print may be one of the reasons why people are asking the welfare of journalism. Uh Often digital publications rely on yellow journalism or sensationalism to attract readers. I don't think that's anything new, but anyway, uh, people know the fact. People know that fact checking is taking seriously when it comes to known newspapers. However, some of the news media which appears on, appears on social media has caused concern. Here we go now. Misinformation. And here we go. Fake news have become part and parcel of the online experience there, leading many to ask about the future of journalism. Never was this more true than during the pandemic when stories were littered across the internet without any due diligence, often to further an agenda. This information came from people without journalism degrees, from people who never worked as news reporters. Uh, Despite this, fake news still manages to damage journalism's image. Many readers struggle to distinguish between genuine news outlets and perpetrators of fake news. A recent study from Statista uh, demonstrated this, where only a quarter of American public said it would be confident in spotting online misinformation. And we'll get more into this element of of fake news as we go. Now, the same study showed that almost 40% of Americans accidentally shared fake news online. While almost 70% admit that it causes confusion when it comes to news stories, it doesn't help that gonzo journalism sometimes blurs the the boundaries between both. Um, so gonzo journalism was, uh, I guess it, it came around in the late 90s, uh, I believe there was a gentleman called Hunter S. Thompson was an advocate for this, you know, handheld, I've got a camera, I've got a mic and I'm just going to go out in the field and, and report, um, which it, Yeah, it was a forerunner to what we see today on social media. Um, If journalism is indecipherable from creative writing, you may be asking how it can survive. Of course, the other side of the coin is that we need good news reporters to disprove all the fake news. Now that information is so plentiful, we need trusted contributors to distribute the truth in this battle for our attention. The new digital landscape has proved to be an incredible asset for this. For instance, the New York Times reported a record $708 million in digital revenue for 2018. Of course, some of this uh, income reflected its reporting on President Trump and the search for credible bylines in a sea of questionable truths. Uh, it was a time when misinformation was plentiful, so more people were willing to pay good money for actual uh, journalism. Um, I don't think I need to read any more from this article but essentially it's this uh, the beginning of a shift to a digital um, realm and how this notion of fake news and misinformation needs to be managed now before we get to that I just want to touch on the death of the old school we got this uh, gentleman here Rupert Murdoch who was a, a media mogul um uh, an Australian gentleman who was uh, he just owned the media in the world basically uh, any uh, any liverpudlian will know this gentleman he was the owner of the sun newspaper which was essentially a, a red red top um gossip and scandal uh, propagator which was Um, (laughs) suggested as a newspaper but um, it was just full of garbage and uh, this guy was responsible for a lot of this uh, garbage being perpetuated over a a long period of time Uh, he owns so much of the the media in the UK and I believe that his company still does Um, you're looking at Fox News you're looking at um, uh, a multitude of newspapers and broadsheets in, in the UK and the US And um, this is an area which has clearly been infiltrated um, by the elite and used by the elite for time immemorial. You've got the relationship between Fleet Street, you know, the hacks, the old school journalists, uh, Freemasonry, um, corruption in um, politics, in metropolitan police, how this is all intertwined with espionage, the spy networks, MI5, Mossad, it all interweaves for the scoop, what would be known as the scoop, what was going to sell the most papers, what was going to be the most shocking scandal of the, the, the building up or the tearing down of, of an individual's reputation. Not news, not reporting the truth, this was proliferating um, gossip, scandal, and all of the the worst facets of the human condition in order to make a buck. Now, why I bring this gentleman up is because he's part of the old school. You've also got a gentleman called Robert Maxwell, the father of uh, the Jelaine Maxwell, who's currently inside, ties with Epstein and all of that stuff. So you had this era of these moguls that controlled and dominated the narrative that the public would consume in order for quite often power political gain and for manipulation of public opinion in order to move legislation or to control and make money in in in, in grand ways. Now this is this has shifted. This is definitely shifted. Now these individuals now he's representative of, of of that elite and you know he's just a one of the public faces of it. This is this has changed. They've had to migrate over to a different way and a different format of how they do this. Um, So with that being said, um, I'm sure many of you will recall this this famous uh, video of uh, what was known as the Sinclair Group. So there is a a controlling monopoly, uh, monopolized uh, company called the Sinclair Group, and they uh, basically run and... Uh, control a lot of the uh, independent media uh, across America. And there was the infamous um, video of, uh, I'll just play it and I'm sure you'll know what, what I mean
1: around Sinclair Broadcasting and its conservative bent. This is a company that owns stations all across the country. And last month I reported that the company was mandating its local stations to produce these media bashing promos. Uh, There's been a lot of angst in local newsrooms about this. Now we're actually seeing the promos, so I want to show you what they look like. Uh, This is a compilation courtesy of Deadspin that's gone viral this weekend. Just a little taste of what these promos look like. The sharing of biased and false, false news has become, become all
2: too common on social media. On social
1: media. More, More alarming, some, some, some media outlets are not published. They simply are true without checking facts, facts first. first. Unfortunately, Unfortunately some members of the media use their, their platforms, platforms to push their, their own personal bias and agenda, agenda to control, to control it. It. Exactly, exactly what people think, and this is extremely dangerous to our democracy. I think you get the idea there. What's going on? All these anchors and all these markets are required to read this script. Uh,
0: it's a. Uh, and these guys go on. But um, yeah, this notion of um, control media uh, perpetuating a narrative or uh, a flow of information in order to manipulate and control uh, the majority of people. Um, shock horror, it comes from television, programming, all of that um, hypnotic nonsense and um we're in the sort of death knells of of what that uh how we used to receive that information you know the the days of watching news at 10 uh you know picking up your paper in the morning like that's i'm sure there are still people out there but we're we're less than a generation from that being phased out um as we move into this um this digital uh, realm and we see these um these old institutions these companies trying to keep up with that um some successfully some not so successfully but behind all of these uh shifts it's still the same it's still the same people it's still the same families it's still the same money that's behind all of these uh, so-called resurgent media outlets whether it's um you know uh, it's the uh, Great Britain News or LBC, like these ones that kind of come out with these right-wing leaning, uh, which sound quite good on the outset uh, kind of stories and these hard-hitting, no, we're here for the truth, these uh, essentially controlled opposition, which on the face of it, um, they seem like they align politically to a right-leaning uh, sentiment, but then it's just the same. It's just the same people behind it. Um, So as these... Dinosaurs desperately cling on <laughs> to how this is uh, evolved. Um, we go into this era of YouTube and uh, self-platformed uh, influencing uh, individuals. You know, like I said about the gonzo journalism, it just uh, YouTube was like a a massive shift in that. And this brought back some memories so the the original youtube was was launched in two thousand and five and uh for, for those that were old enough um the original youtube like login page uh, yeah um we have the beginnings of uh i think what our brother Jack refers to as the wild west of the internet. Um, now I'm not here to school you on the history of the internet but obviously when you go into the the background and the sort of military um, origins of it uh, the way in which it's used by certain um, organisations it's often presented as a tool of entertainment or a tool of convenience uh, for the people but essentially it will be driven for profit and chances are it's not for our benefit but with that being said I wanted to kind of like focus on this this sweet spot this golden era of um, journalism and presenting of, of information um, which uh, YouTube facilitated um, and I remember um, when this first come up you just watch stupid videos of uh, people falling over or Charlie bit my finger and these like absolute YouTube classics like the skateboarding dog. Like it's just, you know, quite uh, innocuous, innocent stuff. Um, Yeah, Charlie bit my finger. Um, yeah, it's mad actually. Um, and how YouTube over time, and I'm sure with the advent of Facebook and uh, you had the MySpace age, this element of the individual being able to um, have their own platform to be heard and and to influence public opinion uh, to the point where we have now, like, the advocacy of, of the influencer, um, you know, whether it be to sell products, narratives, political agendas, and how um, YouTube played a massive role in that. Now, I remember when I, I first started... Um, I think in and around this time, you know, I'm I'm looking for information. I'm looking for truth, as it were, because you know you're sick of the lies that are perpetuated um, by the mainstream. You you, you know that they're are a bunch of no good crooks and it's all lies. And you know there were certain paradigm shifts, whether it's 9 11, you know, the Iraq War, where this distrust of authority really, really was cemented into to the uh to our generation and then so things like youtube were a great tool in order to like start navigating like oh wh- what happened here and what was the truth there and etc cetera, etc cetera. and i remember there was a uh, a golden time where you know you'd have your, your richie from boston's and again i'm not i'm just assuming that viewers of this might might know these people but they may not i don't know you had um channels like pockets of the future Uh, You had Russian vids, um, just all of these, like, and even Days of Noah back in the day, like, all of these little niche pockets of YouTube that were were genuinely reporting and articulating uh, things that weren't right, things that were um, uh, corrupt. And in the same notion, uh, a lot of these were coming from a a biblical narrative, from from a biblical worldview. Um, in this kind of quest f- for truth. And what we've seen um, of late is this curtailing of information, of truth, that we're at a point now where you literally can't say certain words. You know, you, you can't um, show certain material. A, for um, plagiarism or monetized reasons. But most importantly, because you're not conforming to the narrative that is being controlled by these individuals. So if we look at YouTube, for example, who's YouTube owned by Google? Who owns Google? Alphabet Inc. Who owns Alphabet Inc? Vanguard. Who owns Vanguard and, and BlackRock? some faceless uh, shareholder. You know, these guys, and again, this is where you get to the top of the tree, as it were, the top of the pyramid, the the Black Rocks and the Vanguards. It's like, uh, who owns owns Apple? Who has the majority shares, Black Rock? Who owns Disney? Majority shares, Black Rock. Who owns AstraZeneca, Pfizer? Who owns the companies that are actually uh conforming and perpetuating these narratives of um falsehood? These companies that are in turn demonizing those that are trying to um, stand and speak for the truth, because you can't you're getting to the point where we can't do this anymore. are we in a are we in a position now where somebody's sitting here and calling black black and white white like you're not going to be able to do it if it doesn't align with um the narrative that they want and there's they who are they well we just said who they are it's essentially uh principalities of darkness really because again you need that spiritual lens to actually see the wider context of why this information is perpetuated in a, sim, in, in, a, in a particular way who benefits who who who's the winner when it comes to companies being successful or making a profit whether it's from pandemics or wars rumors of wars pestilence famines who's standing to make a profit it's the ones that are controlling the narratives that are able to be perpetuated on these platforms which at one point it was it was a wild west. People could go out and say it, but now it's it's curtailed to a point where you have to be so careful because when you do say too much, you do get deplatformed, you get demonetized, and these other platforming uh, these other platforms are not good enough. You know your rumbles and all of that. Like these guys get deplatformed. They try to keep the momentum, but it it just it just fails. So it just it just got me wondering, like. Uh, and it brought me onto, um, uh, the classic 1984 novel by George Orwell. Um, and again, I, I, he must've been part of the club because the, uh, accuracy at which, uh, he was able to predict things that came into fruition was, uh, was, uh, ridiculous. If you, it, for those who've not read the book, it, there's a, an individual called Winston, he's, uh, working for the the Department of Truth and it's his job to curate news stories and it is set in a dystopian London in the throes of a war propaganda is rife and essentially if you're not part of the team uh, you were ostracised and at worst uh, as we find out later in the novel brainwashed or, or even killed and I just thought this, was, uh, this excerpt was a great example of what's taking place uh, where are we? Let's have a look. On alternative facts, uh, the frightening thing he reflected on for the 10,000th time as he forced his shoulders painfully backward. With hands on hips, they were gyrating their bodies from the waist, an exercise that was supposed to be good for the back muscles. The frightening thing was that it might all be true. If the party could thrust its hand into the past and say of this or of that event, it never happened, that surely was more terrifying than mere torture and death. The party said that Oceana had never been in alliance with Eurasia. He, Winston Smith, knew that Oceana had been in alliance with Eurasia as a short time as four years ago. But where did that knowledge exist? Only in his own consciousness, which in any case must soon be annihilated, and if all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the past, ran the party slogan, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. And yet the past, though of its nature alterable, never had been altered, Whatever was true now was true from everlasting to everlasting. It was quite simple. All that was needed was an unending series of victories over your own memory. Reality control, they called it in you speak. Double think. To know and not to know. To be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies. To hold simultaneously two opinions which cancelled out, knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them to use logic against logic, to repudiate morality while laying claim to it, to believe that democracy was impossible and that the party was the guardian of democracy, to forget whatever it was necessary to forget, then to draw it back into memory again at the moment when it was needed, and then promptly to forget it again, and above all to apply the same process to the process itself. That was the ultimate subtlety. Consciously to induce unconsciousness, and then once again to become unconscious to the act of hypnosis that had just been performed. Even to understand the word doublethink involved the use of doublethink. Sometimes, indeed, you could put your finger on a definite lie. It was not true, for example, as he claimed in the party history books that the party had invented aeroplanes. He remembered aeroplanes since his earliest childhood, but you could prove nothing. There was never any evidence. I think that um that excerpt really encapsulates this uh the notion of the shortening of the memory uh the the inability to retain information um everything is shortened up it, you know youtube shorts and uh short videos on on social media so that the brain can't really facilitate and work to full capacity to retain information and uh yeah this next excerpt i think uh says a lot um This is titled, On Lying to Make the Leader Look Good. Winston dialled back numbers on the telescreen and called for the appropriate issues of the times, which slid out of the pneumatic tube after only a few minutes' delay. The messages he had received referred to articles or news items, which for one reason or another it was thought necessary to alter, or as the official phrase had it, to rectify. For example, it appeared from the times of the 17th of March that Big Brother... We all know about the synonymous uh, um, comparison of Big Brother to uh, Lucifer, essentially. Uh, that's a different thing. But in his speech of the previous day, he had predicted that the South Indian front would remain quiet, but the Eurasian offensive would shortly be launched in North Africa. Uh, as it happened, the Eurasian higher command had launched its offensive in South India and left North Africa alone. It was therefore necessary to rewrite a paragraph of Big Brother's speech in such a way as to make him predict the thing that actually happened. Uh, again, to highlight this notion that the, uh, the controlling uh, force uh, predicted and was correct about something that happened in the past, particularly in an in, in a area of war and conflict. As soon as all the corrections which happened to be necessary in any particular number of the times, which is the, the paper, had been assembled and collated that number would be reprinted, the original copy destroyed, and the correction uh, and the corrected copy uh, placed on the files in its stead. This process of continuous alteration was applied not only to newspapers but to books, periodicals, pamphlets, posters, leaflets, films, soundtracks, cartoons, photographs, to every kind of literature or documentation which might conceivably hold any political or ide- ideological significance. This is taking place today. They are removing books from schools of of great literary uh, weight and uh, influence. They're doing it. It's, 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 it's happening now. Day by day and almost minute by minute, the past was brought up to date. In this way, every prediction made by the party could be shown by documentary evidence to have been correct. This is like Mandela effect on steroids. Nor was it any item of news or any expression of opinion which conflicted with the needs of the moment ever allowed to remain on record. Um, All history was a palimpsest, uh, which is something that has changed and altered, uh, scraped clean and re-inscribed exactly as often as was necessary. In no case would it have been possible once the deed was done to prove that any falsification had taken place. The largest section of the records department, far larger than the one of which Winston worked, consistently simp- consisted simply of persons whose duty it was to track down and collect all copies of books, newspapers and other documents which had been superseded and were due for destruction. A number of the times which might, because of changes in political alignment or mistaken prophecies uttered by Big Brother, have been rewritten a dozen times, still stood on the files bearing its original date and no other copy existed to contradict it books also were recalled and rewritten again and again and were invariably reissued without any admission that any alteration had been made. Even the written instructions which Winston received and which he invariably got rid of as soon as he had dealt with them never stated or implied that an act of forgery was to be committed. Always the reference was to slips, errors, misprints or misquotations it was necessary to put right in the interests of accuracy." But actually, he thought as he readjusted the Ministry of Plenty's figures, it was not even forgery. It was merely the substitution of one piece of nonsense for another. Most of the material that you were dealing with had no connection with anything in the real world, not even the kind of connection that is contained in a direct lie. Statistics were just as much as a fantasy in their original version as in their rectified version. A great deal of time you were expected to make them up out of your head. So why why am I talking about this why this in particular it's because from what i what I'm seeing in this um age of censorship is this if you're willing to um perpetuate a narrative if you're willing to record history in a way that suits those that are running the show you're good to go um The moment you start messing with that, you're just not going to be put out there. You're just not going to have a platform. You're not going to be able to, to, to speak the truth. You know, this manipulation of what reality really is. What is a boy? What is a girl? What is up? What is down? What is right? What is wrong? All of these in real time are being manipulated and changed in order to Control and make profit for those that are uh, in control of, uh, of the world. And this is partly the reason why I felt it was important to look at the mechanics again. Because we can look at the surface level of what's taking place in the Middle East and in the world in general. And we can be reactionary to the injustices, to the death, to all of the heinous things that are taking part. Uh, that are taking part at the moment all absolutely horrendous but deeper underneath that is a machine that's been in operation for a long time so the reason I'm presenting this is because we do need to be careful about the information that's being presented to us the emotions that are attached to it and how we deal with that information we need to question everything We've got the advent of um, artificial intelligence, deep fakes. It's very hard to actually discern what is genuinely real, what has taken place and what has been made up and and shown. And, and, And part of the arcs within 1984, which is fascinating, is that it shows... Uh, so-called conquests and so-called things that take place in the war i'm not saying that this is applicable to what's taking place now i'm just saying we need to be careful about how information is presented to us from the powers that be what is the motivation and what is it pushing it pushing us towards now i said at the outset about this movement towards a globalized version of journalism because they want a unified narrative they want something that conforms to a a direction. And it says that we're not to conform to the ways of the world. And I think this is included in that, that even the very elect will be deceived. So I don't have the full answers, but what I do have is a sense of unease of, I believe these are the same powers and principalities that are operating behind the First World War, the Second World War, and what's taking place today. Freemasonry is well alive in the Middle East as much as it is in the West. So let's not be deceived in terms of um, what people are saying and how they're saying it, Uh, no matter how um, innocuous that uh, information comes from, whether it's social media, um, smaller platforms. It's just uh, we're in such a very, very... Uh, strange place with regards to information and how that's presented, uh, and I hope that this brings a bit of context to, to where we're at in um, in that. And as you know, it raises the question: What is the future like? Uh, is it do we are we going to have to go back to radio? You know, like little transistor pirate radio stations to to actually um, network and and for information good information to be shared i don't know but i'm um, this this area this 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 place of interaction and sharing of information it's really really been curtailed is, is the most polite way i could could say and and, and those that are able to express and, and are, are able to main, maintain a platform you have to question as to as to why so the biggest biggest underlying principle of this why am I talking about all of this what's the point because you're talking about newspapers and internet what does it matter it matters because of the gospel and it matters because of the word of God because if they're willing to change and manipulate truth in this context then they are, are willing and ready to change the word of God and to change the gospel so what I am advocating is that we are coming to a point where you have the only the only written text that you can truly rely on is your Bible, and again we can get into the uh, intricacies of translations and transliterations and the fallacies of you know this trans. I'm not I'm not fast about that. We had a great conversation at Shabbat about how amazing it is to cross reference, and we have all the different translations. The important thing is that in Jeremiah it says that the word will be written on our hearts and that's very important. Now I'm not suggesting that we need to go to the the school of Gamaliel and be able to recite the Torah from my head like, if you can do that, praise you. I can't do that. But there are certain fundamental uh, principles of the word that need to be etched in my heart because we don't know what's going to take place in the future with regards to um, how they control and change uh, the word of God to perpetuate an antichrist narrative, which is what we're seeing in the the so-called church with regards to affirmation and inclusivity and all of that. Um, surely God didn't say, surely God didn't say. So we just need to be, that's the heart behind all of this. Get into your word, know your word, because they're, they're probably going to come for it if not already. Um, so just to finish on this, uh, this uh, ramble of journalism, where are we today? Where are we today? The New York Times uh, help wanted, looking for an AI editor to start publishing stories. The New York Times boasts all news that is fit to print. That's news used to be written by hu- that's news used to be written by humans, but it looks like the Times is going to let bots do their journalism. They're looking for a senior editor to lead the newsroom's efforts to ambitiously and responsibly make us gener- generative artificial intelligence. I'm not kidding. How the mighty have fallen. It's on their job listings. Have we reached the end of civilization now? Uh, This editor will be responsible for ensuring that the Times is a leader in gen AI innovation and its applications for journalism. They will lead our efforts to use gen AI AI tools in reader facing ways as well as internally in the newsroom. To do so, they will shape the vision for how we approach this technology and will serve as the newsroom's leading voice on its opportunity as well as as its limits and risks. Uh, There are qualifications for this job, which pays whatever. Now, um, this is where we're at. And why I highlight the uh, the AI element is because it shortens everything up. When we were reading about Winston in 1984 and how he's having to manually curate and change and do that, they've got the algorithms. Like the AI is there so it can just boom, 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 boom. It's instant. The the time is so quick, so it enables this this uh, uh, propagation of, of falsehoods so much more um, effortlessly and economically than having a guy <laughs> cutting and pasting and sending it down a tube or whatever. It, it's it's here, so it's a way in which they can curate this information in a way that's like uh, so so quick. Um, so I hope that that made sense and that um i painted a bit of a picture there like you're going to have to be your own journalist you're going to have to be able to ascertain your own information like what where are your sources like where where are you going to uh to get your information like what what's your research saying are you just still waiting to be spoon-fed um or or are you actually citing um, the the documents first hand and, and again as part of the difficulty of of uh, commenting or uh, being part of the narrative that's taking place uh, today is like I don't know I'm not there I, I don't know first hand so you have to go through um, a, a process of sourcing uh, the legitimacy of that and actually um, discerning uh, as best as you can so that's journalism um, I hope that makes sense So is this the end of journalism? Is, is, is it a done deal? Is there still a little bit of uh, gold to, to come from this era? Um, are you still able to get good information from reliable sources or is it all, all no good? Um, yeah, let me know in the comments. on the theme of uh, uh, of journalism and printing and all the rest, I, I came across uh, this actually, like literally this, mor- this morning, um, and just to be transparent, um, with regards to the content, like I'll have an idea or something that I'll, I'll work on and then literally up until the, the, the day, the minute before something will come in and it will tie in quite nicely, and this this was a uh, This was one of them. So, um, yeah, a courageous Christian group risks their life to smuggle Bibles into persecuted regions. Uh, As Christians in many countries face cruelty and persecutions uh, for their faith in Jesus Christ, uh, a group of daring believers in the Middle East is making remarkable efforts to ensure the gospel's reach. Uh, These brave souls are secretly printing Bibles, putting everything on the line, even their lives to make sure that the word of god gets some of the most uh, gets to some of the most inaccessible areas. Uh, global Christian Relief, a vigilant eye on religious persecution, recently highlighted the work of these brave believers. Brian Orm from the organization recounted meeting one such individual. Uh, I have been arrested three times and they tried to kill me five times, said the man, revealing the grave dangers he has faced. Harrowing as the experiences were, his unwavering faith is evident. He attributed his survival to the prayers of believers and Christ's protection. Uh, Despite the real threats surrounding them, their dedication remains unshaken. Uh, One story shared involved a man so profoundly touched upon receiving a Bible that he described it as the most important book on earth. Amen to that. Such reactions inspire these printers to persevere with the conviction that they'll never give up. Uh, orm gave a glimpse into their operations highlighting a secret warehouse churning out thousands of copies of the new testament Uh, he showed 25,000 copies ready to each eager hands for safety the exact country faces of those involved and even the bible covers remain undisclosed the primary mission to smuggle these bibles into iran and fortify the faith of its recipients um which again a a lot of people assume that in arabic countries that christianity isn't a thing it it most definitely is um the commitment extends beyond adults Uh, a second facility dedicates its efforts to produce children's bibles as Orm highlighted these bibles are illegal Uh, yet the desire to nurture young souls and fortify their faith overcomes the peril Uh, it's evident Uh, that their love for God and purity of their mission to spread his word fuels their actions as they venture into these risky endeavors they need our prayers so in the spirit of solidarity and faith let's remember the words from the book of Joshua Uh, be strong and courageous do not be afraid do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go so let's take a look
1: I have to raise my voice because I'm in a printing press but there's something really special about this printing press
2: Hi, I'm Brian with Global Christian Relief. Right now, we're in the Middle East. Although for security reasons, we cannot tell you the name of the country, nor can we show you the faces of believers or even the covers of Bibles. In spite of all these things, we're about to see something very special. We're driving to see something incredible I'm so excited about, but it's also really incredibly sensitive and dangerous. We're going to have to take every precaution to make sure that we keep everything and all the information here safe. It's something that most people never get
1: to see. We're going through lots of checkpoints. It's just funny to be in the backseat as Americans. Here we go. I have to raise my voice and speak loudly because I'm in a printing press, but there's something really special about this printing press. It's a secret Bible publishing warehouse. Right behind me are 25,000 copies of the New Testament. They're gonna be bound and then they're gonna be smuggled into Iran The persecuted believer to help strengthen them and to strengthen the Turks. This is only made available because of your prayer and support. I'm so excited even just to be here, to see the action, to, to see all
2: of the printing happening and to see the wonderful workers behind the scene, which we can't show you because it's too dangerous. And now we're on our way to a second printing facility This facility specifically focused on children's Bibles. These Bibles are awesome.
1: They're meant to be used with families, where you can see the different pictures that are there for children to color in while mom and dad are reading the story together. These Bibles are illegal. They're gonna be smuggled into dangerous places. So please pray for those who are taking these Bibles to help strengthen the church. This Bible right here we know is gonna impact a child in a powerful way for God's kingdom.
2: We were overjoyed to finally see these Bibles being printed in real life. However, the unseen reality of being a Bible printer is much tougher than we could imagine. <laughs> To meet Simcoe and hear his story, it both broke my heart for what he and his fellow believers have suffered, but it also inspired me by his incredible resilience and faith in his mission. It is only through your support and prayer that Bible printers like Simcoe can keep printing Bibles to share God's word where it's needed most
0: i I mean the, the, there's there's work going on serious work going on to get the word out there and um uh, again just um never take for granted the fact that you've got the word in your possession uh it's our daily bread cherish it learn it know it let it be part of you because there is a there is a an outside uh threat to that so um yeah never never take it for granted and um if you're led, keep those guys in prayer because they're doing some uh, doing some amazing work. Um now finally, so I appreciate you guys that have hung around to the end. And uh for those that know me, uh I, I very much like art and drawing and painting and all that good stuff. And again, I came across this literally this morning and it's just something I thought was really cool, really amazing. And uh yeah, uh an artist by the name of James Cook. And he basically, he does portraits by using a typewriter alone. And I saw this again, I just thought it was a nod to everything that we're discussing today with regards to the press and all of that stuff. So uh, yeah, have a look and see what you think. Um yeah, incredible. Um that's it. Thank you for joining me. Um I appreciate the the, the time uh that you spent. Uh I hope that uh that blessed you. Um I, I pray that uh you can keep your peace in these times. Um I hope this reaches you and your family well. It's much appreciated that you've taken the time to be with me and um yeah until next time uh, from my house to yours shalom um it's been a pleasure uh take care god bless